You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we're going to be giving you my UFC 253 post-fight breakdown, my reaction to Holly Holm versus Irene Aldana, as well as my predictions for UFC Fight Night, Marais versus Sandhagen, which takes place this Saturday, October 10th, from Fight Island. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, guys, how's everybody doing today? Um, a little bit of a different episode or a different time because I usually do them on Mondays and Fridays, but the schedule's been kind of messed up, but we're back. So let's start it off. I mean, we got so much to talk about, so we should just get it get right to it. Let's talk about Adesanya versus Costa. Um, we'll start off with one of the prelims, which was Brad Riddell defeating Alex Da Silva Coelho. I believe is his full name. He beat him via decision. Um, a pretty one-sided victory. And uh, I've been singing Brad Riddell's praises for a long time. I mean, you guys know him from City Kickboxing, obviously training alongside guys like Shane Young, Israel Adesanya, Dan Hooker, Kaikara France. Um, That that gym has some of the best guys in the world, and I think Brad Riddell is really on his way up in terms of that lightweight division, man. His striking is phenomenal. Really good at landing same-side punches, same-side combinations. You know, he'll jab, left hook to the body, left hook up top, um, rip the left hook to the body, come up top. Um, good calf kicks. Like I said, he doesn't throw a traditional um, leg kick. He throws a calf kick uh, where you kick up. You're not you're not kicking down, swinging into the low kick. You're kicking up on the calf and a few of those calf kicks. And, you know, that's about all she wrote. Um, I, I actually want to would like to pull up some highlights of this fight because it was just I, I love the way Brad Riddell strikes. He, he's he's like tailor made my type of style. Um Let's see if I can pull up some highlights. So here. Yeah, he's just really good in his shell. He keeps his hands he keeps his hands low, but then he's good with moving his head. Um, and then he'll go back to a traditional high guard. Um, good at slipping and countering. He'll slip um, the jab and counter with the right hand left hook. Slip inside and go left hook. Um, good takedown defense. Yeah, he does get taken down quite a lot, but he's good at scrambling up to his feet. Against Alex Da Silva Coelho, he had a little bit of trouble in the first round with getting taken down and getting controlled from that half guard position. Um, Coelho was kind of just able to ride him out, and then when he got back up to the feet, he got the body lock and just worked from the back to try to get the hooks in and take him back down, Um, but eventually he was able to get back out, and after that first round, it was just all Brad Riddell on the feet. Um, he controlled the distance, was able to close the distance when he wanted to and get out of range when he needed to from the kicks and punches. And just is very calm on the feet. You know, he's had a bunch of kickboxing fights, really, really solid technique, like we've said. Um, good ability to uh, jump in, um, shift his weight, land some punches, and then get out of range. He's good at get, at getting at hitting and not getting hit. Um, in a couple of his other fights, like against Jamie Malarkey, and Magomed Mustafayev, you know, he he would like to get engaged into a lot of brawls and kind of take more shots than he needed to and not fight as technical. But against Coelho on the feet, he just would slip that he would slip that jab, come across with that right hand left hook, slip it, counter left hook, and then rip the left hook to the body, come up top. The calf kicks were a problem. Um, you just good takedown defense, good ability to control Coelho in the clinch after that first round and really not get taken down much and uh, try to get his back off the fence. And yeah, just a really, really solid striker is Brad Riddell. And he deserves a top 15 ranked guy next. Now, who's that going to be? Um, I don't know. I'm actually, we can pull up the rankings right now and see who I think he should get next. I like the Paul Felder matchup, but I actually like the Paul Felder fight for Michael Chandler. I think Paul Felder versus Michael Chandler 
uh, up next at lightweight is the, probably the best way to go about things for a newcomer like Chandler. But uh, let's see, who do we got at lightweight in the top 15? Uh, Drew Dober is fighting Diego Ferreira, who's ranked 8th. Ally Quinta could be a decent matchup for him. Kevin Lee, I like. I like the Kevin Lee fight, actually. Um, I don't know. I think Kevin Lee's going up to uh, to welterweight, though. So I'm not going to count him. I think Benil Dariush is supposed to be fighting Charles Oliveira. Um, Islam Mahachev's fighting Rafael Dos Anjos. Give him Gregor. Does Gregor Gillespie have a fight? Let's see. Uh huh. Gregor Gillespie. Does he have anything coming up? I don't think so because he had that vicious knockout. Yeah, no. So whenever Gregor Gillespie comes back, if you want to wait for him to come back, which he should be back somewhat soon. Um, yeah, I would give him Gregor Gillespie. I think Gregor Gillespie versus Brad Riddell is a good fight for him. That's like the 13th, 14th ranked guy in that division. If you don't want to give him, if you don't want to give him uh, Gregor Gillespie, give him the winner of Rafael Dos Anjos and Islam Makachev. I think that's a good fight too. So that's what I would do: either Islam, an RDA winner, or Gregor Gillespie. And uh, the Drew Dober and. Diego Fanetta fight's a great fight, so I can't wait to see that either. I would really like the Pettis fight for Brad Riddell. I think Anthony Pettis versus Brad Riddell is a great fight too, but I don't know if Pettis is going to stay at welterweight, and if he is, then we can't have that fight happen. So we'll see what happens. But obviously Brad Riddell got the win, so that's that's that fight. What's next? Um, Hakeem Dawadu defeats Subaira Tukagov via decision. Um, pretty a pretty close fight in the first couple rounds. You know, Zubaira tried to land some flashy kicks and get into grappling exchanges, and it worked pretty well. But um, Hakeem was able to just pick up the pace and land low kicks, land some shots in the clinch, and uh, did a pretty good job at nullifying the game of Mago, of uh, Zubaira Tukagov. Let's see if I can get some highlights. Yeah, here we go. So, yeah, I mean, it was... That fight was pretty um, even. It was kind of a lackluster fight, but I, you know, I picked Hakeem. I wanted Hakeem to get the job done, and he got the job done via, I believe it was a split decision. But Hakeem's very good at letting the fight come to him, but then if he hurts you, he can jump in you know, and finish you off. Zubaira Tukagov's more of an explosive guy. He kind of waits, lulls you to sleep, and then lands two or three shots. You know, he, um, one or two shots, actually. He's not much of a combination striker. He just looks to land power, just pop up, and that's it, and then get out of range. Did a pretty good job against Hakeem, but Hakeem was able to get the job done. So good win for Hakeem Dawadu over Zubaira Tukagov. What's next for him? Um, I don't know. I think uh, I think he's in a really good spot, to be honest. I think he's in a great spot for that division, and I would like Sadiq Youssef versus Hakeem Dawadu. I think that's a great fight. For 145 pounds. If you don't want to do that, um, let's see. Uh, Barbosa's fighting Makwan Amirkani this weekend. How about Bryce Mitchell versus Hakeem Dawadu? You guys like that one? I like that one a lot. Or uh, Shane Burgos versus Hakeem Dawadu, but I don't think Burgos would take 
a fight with somebody outside the top 15. So give him Bryce Mitchell. Let him crack that top 15, see what he can do. And let's get Bryce Mitchell versus Akeem Dawadu. And uh, if not, I like Bryce Mitchell versus Ryan Hall. I think that's a perfect fight to make at 145. But, uh, yeah, Hakeem definitely deserves an, a big fight next. I think number one for me would be Hakeem Dawadu versus Sadiq Youssef. And then number two would be Hakeem Dawadu versus um, – versus uh, Bryce Mitchell. I like those two fights for him, to be honest. I really like those. Or they just announced – Jeremy Stevens versus Arnold Allen. You could give him the winner of that fight, Hakeem Dawadu versus either Arnold Allen or Jeremy Stevens. I mean, that would be cracking the top 10, but it's a big step up for Hakeem, and I think he deserves it. So, yeah, give him that. Uh, what's next? What's the next fight? Uh, Brandon Royvals, uh, Raw Dog Royvals submits Kaikara France via a second round guillotine. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal fight. That fight was just a war. Um, back and forth. Back and forth for the whole entire time. I mean, each guy hurt the other guy. Um, Brandon Royval ended up getting clipped with a overhand right from Kaikar France. We've talked about how clean and technical Kaikar France's striking is. That double jab to that overhand right, that jab to the overhand right. He's got very, very clean and technical striking. And uh, if he lands on your chin, you know, he can put you to sleep. He's got a lot of power. I know for a flyweight there's not too many guys in that division who can knock you dead, but I think Kaikar France is one of them. You know, Royval was doing good with just switching up his stances from Southpaw to Orthodox, landing good kicks, good jabs, trying to stay outside of the punches of uh, outside of the punches and kicks of Royval or uh, of Kaikar France and just push him forward. Like he would, he would back up and then come forward. Um, Car France countered with a, I believe he countered an inside low kick with a overhand right, if I'm watching this correctly, because he pushed him up against the fence, but Royval keeps his chin up. Yeah, he countered that left kick. He came over the top, landed the overhand right, went to uh, knock Royval off balance. Royval was stumbling all over the place. Car France went to come in, and he he did a spinning back elbow and connected on the chin and dropped Car France and then landed a knee to the body um, and tried to jump into a go-go plata, which is where you take the chin of the one leg. Well, you take the one leg and put it over the arm of the opponent and then put the shin underneath the chin and uh, on the neck to then pull down and uh, drive the opponent's neck into your shin and get the submission. That's a go-go plata. He transitioned it to an Oma plata, which is the, that shoulder lock, but the shoulder's already in that position from the go-go plata. So you just have to spin your hips out, make sure you control the waist with that seatbelt and uh, sit up. But Car France did a good job of settling his weight back controlling the legs of Brandon Royval so he couldn't sit up and trying to break that figure four lock over the shoulder and then keeping that knee somewhat close to the body of Royval to again stop him from sitting up. Um, Royval just, you know, the, the grappling exchanges in this fight, Royval was definitely the better grappler, but we knew that coming in, you know, controlling on the top, um, trying to get in the mount, trying to get some good positions, eventually trying to take the back of Kai Carfranz and just trying to suffocate him with top pressure. Um, but on the feet, you know, Royval's not a joke either on the feet. He he has a less technical style than Kai Car France. I would say Car France is definitely the more technical guy, but he's good on the feet with fakes and feints landing that left kick to the body, jumping in with knees, um, double jabs, right hands, overhand lefts, um, and just pushing you forward and making you make a mistake, and then he can go into the grappling exchanges. And that's pretty much what he did against Car France. He dropped him up against the fence, I believe, with the knee to the body. 
And uh, let's see if I can pull this up. Yeah, so he landed a left kick to the body and then a knee and uh, dropped Car France, went to jump the guillotine, but uh, it didn't work. Car France got out of it, and uh, it was just back on the pressure. You know, Royval is just so calm. He was, so that's two back-to-back -back wins now. I mean, beating Tim Elliott and Kai Car France in your first two fights in the UFC. Um, he eventually got the finish. Like I said, it was via a guillotine choke um, at the start of the second round. They came out. Royval was just faking, landing kicks, trying to push Car France back to the fence, trying to land that knee up the middle because he knew Car France was going to duck down and try to throw that overhand right or that left hook. So he was going to try to catch him as he ducked down and catch him with the knee. Um, but just good overall game from uh, Brandon Royval, faking and fainting, just real, real smooth, real technical on the feet, um, popping with the jab, the right hand, just sticking that jab out to keep him at range. And then whenever he would try to shoot, he uh, – Locked up the choke. Uh, let's see how he got that choke. Yeah, so he jumped in for a, a takedown. Royval got control of the head and arm. Locked up the guard and uh, submitted him. Got him with a standing guillotine choke. He dropped down, and that was it. He tapped. So great submission game from Royval. He actually locked up a figure four on the body instead of the traditional guard to uh, make it harder for Car, Car France to get out of it. But, yeah, Brandon Royval defeats Kai Car France via second-round submission. He now moves to uh, UFC 255 since Garbrandt is out of the title fight against Davison Figueiredo. They threw Alex Perez into the fight against Davison Figueiredo. So now at UFC 255, we've got Davison Figueiredo versus Alex Perez for the flyweight championship. And you've got Brandon Moreno versus Brandon Raw Dog Royval. So that is phenomenal. Those two fights are great. I don't know what the main event is going to be for 255. I feel like they were banking on Garbrandt being in that fight. He uh, tore his biceps, so he's not going to make that fight, but he said he will continue to fight at flyweight and is looking to get the title shot when he comes back in early 2021. So I'm looking to see that's probably what's next for Cody. Um, what's a good fight for this card? I know Jennifer Maya versus Valentina Shevchenko is on this card, I'm pretty sure, so that's a title fight. I think they try to throw one more title fight on there. Um, I'm not sure what it could be. Uh, maybe Aljamain Sterling versus Piotr Jan. Um, I could see that fight getting moved to 256, considering that Gilbert Burns versus uh, Kamaru Usman is now off of 256. Usman wants to take more time and heal up after he stepped in on short notice against Masvidal at UFC 251. I don't blame him. Um, that kind of leaves Gilbert Burns out, but he was the one who pulled out of the fight originally due to COVID. So... I'm talking about at 251, so you can't blame him. But what's next for him? Um, I know Leon Edwards is campaigning to fight Gilbert Burns for the title or the interim title or a number one contender fight. I'd like to see that fight happen. I think Leon Edwards versus Gilbert Burns is a phenomenal fight to make, but I, I don't see Gilbert Burns taking that fight. I think Gilbert Burns just waits for Usman. And then for 256, I would put Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier as the uh, main event. I think Conor McGregor versus Poirier, it's it's literally, um, is it six years? No, five years to the day of when Conor McGregor knocked out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds and won his first featherweight world championship in the UFC, his first world title, well, official world title because he defeated Chad Mendes for the interim title at UFC 189, but it's his first official championship. So it's it's an anniversary. It would be a rematch between McGregor and Poirier at this point in their career. I think it's a phenomenal fight to make. I still favor McGregor 
beating Dustin Poirier. I think his striking is just too clean in his distance management. Yes, I know Poirier's striking has developed leaps and bounds ahead of where it was when they first fought. I think it'll be a good fight, but I just think Connor's too sharp for Poirier, and I think he catches him and knocks him out again. Do I think it ends as quickly as the first time? Um, no, I don't. I think it's a little bit more competitive, but I still think Connor's too sharp and too clean for Poirier. And I think he finds the holes in the defense and uh, eventually catches him and knocks him dead. So, yeah, I hope that's the fight that they put on 256. But again, we don't know. We'll have to wait and see what happens. But we're definitely getting a new main event. Um, it's either going to be Gilbert Burns and Leon Edwards, which I highly doubt, um, or Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier, number two. And then you could throw Aljamain Sterling and Piotr Jan on that card, too. I expect Piotr Jan versus Aljamain Sterling to either be on 255 or 256 going forward. I think one of those cards gets that fight. I can't wait for that fight. I think it's a phenomenal, phenomenal matchup for both guys. It's tough for Aljamain Sterling. I think it's tough, a tougher fight for Aljamain than it is for Jan, but I still think it's competitive, and I see areas where both guys can win. So I'll talk about that fight when it gets announced closer to the date. Um, when it gets announced, I'll probably talk about it a little bit more in depth, but we have a lot to cover on this episode, so let's continue to move forward. Um, Jan Blachowicz defeats Dominic Reyes via a second-round TKO, becoming the new light heavyweight champion. This was extremely impressive. Extremely impressive from Jan Blahovich. I thought Blahovich looked really, really good. Um, I, I expected Reyes to have a lot more success than he did. Um, the body kicks of Dominic or of Jan Blahovich were the key against the, the body kicks for Jan Blahovich were the key against Dominic Reyes. Because every time Reyes would step in, he would blast that liver. Blast that liver. Blast to the body over and over and over again. Uh, let's see. Blahovich versus Dominic Reyes. I should be able to pull up some highlights. Yeah, here we go. So uh, we'll just go through the fight. At the beginning of the fight, you know, Reyes was pushing forward, trying to land that straight left. And uh, Blahovich was kind of pushing him in, but he would go switch kick to the body with that left kick. The right, the straight right hand to the switch left body kick was the key for Jan Blahovich in this fight. When you throw that right hand, you're putting the weight on your back foot, but then when you pull back, it adds more torque into that lead body kick. So your right hand, they're probably going to move towards their right, which is your left side, and then you pop that left body kick in, and it was landing over and over again. That left body kick of Blahovich was money on the liver of Dominic Reyes. He didn't throw the back power kick because he wanted to land on the liver. When you land on the liver over and over again, it's always a, a more a harder shot to land, and it's a well a more damaging shot, I should say, than a traditional right body kick. But Blahovich would uh, step in and just go. Um, let's see, right hand, left hook, right hand, left body kick. Uh, step forward, bop, 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 left body kick. Step forward, bop, 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 left body kick. And Reyes just could never really get going. He tried to pick it up in the second round. Blahovich just continued to push forward, land combinations on the feet. He was just calm, cool, and collected. A lot more calm than I expected him to be against Reyes. A lot of the shots of Dominic Reyes weren't landing. I think he might have landed one or two straight lefts. But as he closed the distance, I mean, Blahovich was just on another level. In and out, um, good slipping and good defense, but that left body kick was just taking the wind out of Dominic Reyes, and then it opened up the punches, that right, that straight right to the right hook, to the left hand, just pushing him back, pop, 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 left body kick, pop, 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 left body kick, over and over and over again. And uh, and he caught uh, up.
All right, so let's get back onto it, talking about Jan Blahovich versus Dominic Reyes. You know, the biggest weapons, like I said, for for Blahovich was that switch left kick to the body. He would throw the right hand, get Dominic Reyes to move away from it, move towards Jan's left or Dominic's right, which is Dominic's lead side, and then he would throw the right hand, which would aid in the torque of the left hip, and then he would pull back that right hand and left, land the left kick. Um, Reyes landed some good left kicks to the body, tried to go with some left high kicks, you know, from the power side, and he did land the straight left on a couple of occasions in the fight. And he started the second round looking like he was more comfortable and uh, not as tentative as he was in the first round. However, Blahovich was just on another level. He was patient, but he was also active at the same time. When you can be a patient fighter and still be active and push the pace at the same time, then that makes for a dangerous combo. And a lot of people counted out Blahovich. I picked Reyes to win. So I was wrong, you know, cause I thought Dominic Reyes was going to be able to win, but Blahovich proved me wrong. I mean, right hand, left hook, right hand, switch, left kick to the body. Um, right hand, left hook, right hand, double jab. I mean, he was going constant combinations, but he was kind of just letting the fight come to him, letting Reyes make the moves originally when Dominic Reyes is sometimes more of a counter striker. But it was pop, 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 left kick to the body. Pop, 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 touch, get him to block high and then rip the body. And that was a lot of the keys for um, Jan Blahovich in the fight. Dominic Reyes just couldn't get it going. Again, he tried to constantly move, switch, uh, cut angles on Blahovich, try to get the outside foot. Since they were in opposite stance, you want to get that outside foot for the southpaw fighter and land the straight left down the middle. However, it was just hard for Reyes to get a beat on, for Reyes to get a read on Blahovich, and it was easy for Blahovich to just kind of figure it out. He would go overhand right to a sweeping left hook. He would just wait for Reyes to come in, pop, 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 kick, pop, 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 kick, right hand, switch, left kick, and then the end of the fight came when, if I can pull it up, I think the finish is on here. Yeah. The end of the fight came when Blahovich actually broke the nose of Dominic Reyes, but he countered, I want to say he countered, yeah, he went right hand, left hook, right hand, and I believe that first right hand broke the nose of Dominic Reyes. Right hand, right hook, left hook, left high kick. He was just making him circle into power no matter what side he went to. If he circled to his right, um, that left hook was coming to move him back towards his left. You know, pop, 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 he would, he would get him up against the fence. Dominic tried to pull away and counter a few times, but it just didn't work. He tried to land a left kick. Um, Blahovich again ran, darted in with that right hand to then sweep with that left hook and jab on the same side to keep Dominic at a distance, but also keep his hands up. And the final finishing combination, the final punch or the final combination that he landed was a, let's see if I can see it right here. I think Reyes went for a lead uppercut. Okay. So, it was a right hook to, what was it? A right hook to a left uppercut? Let's see. So here we go. Dominic is looking to move forward. He lands that kick. Blahovich lands that right hand, left hook, left jab. Um, okay, so Dominic Reyes went like a straight left to a right hook, and Blahovich countered and landed his own counter right hook as Reyes went to land that left uppercut. Um, he went to land the left uppercut. Blahovich countered him with that lead right hook, dropped him, and finished him off. In the second round, Jan Blahovich, Polish power, is the new light heavyweight champion. Um, first light heavyweight champion since John Jones. He didn't beat John Jones, but he proved that he's at the top of that division because of how close the fight with Dominic Reyes and 
John Jones was, and Blahovich just ran right through Dominic Reyes. So it shows how good Dominic Reyes. It shows how good Jan Blahovich is by how easy he made it look to beat Dominic Reyes. Um, what's next for the light heavyweight division? Um, there's one fight being discussed for November, I believe, or December, and it's uh, Yuri Prohaska versus Alexander Rakic. And I love that fight for the light heavyweight division. I think that's a phenomenal fight. I think if you're not going to give Rakic the title shot right now, which that might be what's happening because I know Yuri posted on Twitter, um, go ahead and take your title shot. I'll be here waiting to uh, face you whenever it happens. So we might be getting Alexander Rakic versus Jan Blahovich, or we could be getting, and then if that happens, we can get Yuri Prohaska versus Tiago Santos. Well, actually, no, we can't because Tiago Santos and Glover Teixeira are booked to fight in uh, November, I believe. So that's not going to happen either. So I don't know. If Teixeira and Santos doesn't happen, I would do Tiago Santos versus Yuri Prohaska. I think that's a great fight. But if they do make Yuri Prohaska versus Alexander Rakic. That's probably the best fight you can make at 100 at 205 pounds right now. That's probably the best fight you can make, aside from a super fight, which we're going to talk about a little bit later on this episode of the podcast. But that is probably the best fight you can make right now. Alexander Rakic dominated Anthony Smith in his last fight, just made it look easy. Dominated him in the grappling, which I didn't expect, and dominated him on the feet with the low kicks and uh, just the vicious kicking game of Alexander Rakic and keeping him at a distance. And then Yuri Prohaska knocked out Volkan Uzdemir in his UFC debut with a beautiful, I believe it was, a, he jumped to fake the flying knee and then landed a right hand, dropped him and finished him off. Prohaska's a lot of fun to watch. I love Yuri. I think he. I think he's been phenomenal. You know, we've only seen him fight once in the UFC, so we can't sit here and say, that he's like the best of the best because we need to see him prove himself a little bit more. But I do believe he can be a top contender at 205 pounds and possibly a future champion. So I would definitely keep a lookout for Yuri Prohaska. Um, okay, so we talked about that. Let's talk about the main event of 253, which was Israel Adesanya, Israel Adesanya putting on a clinic, a clinic of a performance against Paulo Costa. I expected it to pretty much go exactly how it went. Um, I thought that Costa was going to have a little bit more success. I thought he was going to be able to get Izzy up against the fence a few times, but he just really wasn't able to do anything. I mean, when you look at the highlights of... Actually, I'm, let me pull them up. When you look at the highlights of Israel Adesanya and Paulo Costa... Let's see... It, it was very. It was just a clinical performance from Adesanya. You have to keep Paulo Costa at a distance. You have to make sure you're constantly chopping that lead leg to get him to not be able to move in. Um, Adesanya switched up the low kicking game a little bit for Paulo Costa. He was landing that he would fake, you know, hip faint, right low kick, fake the jab, right low kick, jab, right low kick. But he would also use that front stomp to the knee or uh, the elliptical kick to the knee. So he would push kick the knee of Paulo Costa to keep him at range and stop him from moving in, but also to extend, um, hyperextend the knee. Um, every time Paulo Costa looked to land the body kick, because we know that against fighters of opposite stances, if you're in the same stance as him, he'll go with the rear body kick. And if you're in an opposite stance, he will use a lead switch kick to your body to close you in, stop you from circling and moving laterally left and right, and to get you up against the fence where he can get his brawl, get his brawling on and land the shots to the body. However, um, Israel was able to just control the distance enough and circle away from all of the kicks. Um, fake and faint. Paulo Costa did land 
a good low kick on Izzy. Um, tried to land the body kicks, but it just wasn't working. He landed a few good ones, but Izzy would catch the low, catch the kick, and then um, let go of the kick and counter with a right cross left hook, let go hook hook to the body and up top. He would always make him pay for throwing shots. Um, just constantly landing jabs inside, outside, low kicks, jab, um, and constantly just moving on angles, um, side stances, lateral movement, lead leg question mark kicks, rear leg question mark kicks. Then he would use that question mark kick to switch from southpaw, from orthodox to southpaw, and then he could land that left kick from the power side. He was just constantly keeping Costa away. Even when he got him up against the fence, Israel would catch the body kick and circle into it and take the power off of it. He would circle just out of range and catch the kick and then go back to the inside and outside low kicks on the lead leg of Costa. By damaging the lead leg of Paulo Costa and by constantly jabbing and faking and feigning, by faking and feigning as much as Adesanya did, you're overloading the brain of Paulo Costa. If you can overload somebody's brain with the techniques you're using, it's going to make it harder for them to pull the trigger on their own techniques and they're going to get stuck. But the low kicks and the and just the counter game of Adesanya a lead leg high kick, chopping the low kick, chopping the low kick. Um, there was a point where Costa tried to go with a, what, what is it right here? A jab to a lead left hook, and uh, Adesanya just slipped and then circled and used that frame on the lead side to uh, control the distance. And then he caught the rear roundhouse kick of Costa, the right round kick, caught it, let go, rip, rip to the body, rip up top. So even when he threw those kicks and was in good enough range to throw the kicks, Izzy would catch it, let go of it, pop, 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 rip, 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 rip to the body and up top to the head, making it impossible for Costa to land anything um, substantial. And then when you look at the finishing sequence, it looked like Costa was trying to go with a jab to a left hook again to catch Izzy, possibly circling to his right side. Um, he slipped the jab. I believe he slipped the inside the jab, um, tried to land the overhand right, and then pulled back and landed that left hook, grazed it off the temple of Paulo Costa. If you look at side-by-side -side pictures of Israel Adesanya throwing that left hook for, on Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya throwing that left hook on Paulo Costa, they are literally almost identical images of the same left hook, the same way he set it up with that right hand pulled back and, and arching his hips into that left hook to try to land it. It's it's perfect. So he lands that on the temple, dropped Paulo Costa, got on top of him, and finished him off with ground and pound in the second round. A flawless performance by the last style bender, Israel Adesanya. Unbelievable performance. Who's next for him? Well, you've got a couple fights at 185 pounds. You've got um you've got Robert Whitaker versus Jaron Cannonier happening in the co-main event of UFC 254. You've got Darren Till versus Jack Hermanson. So I would venture to say the winner of Cannonier versus Whitaker will probably get the title shot against Adesanya. And then the winner of that fight would fight the winner of Darren Till and Jack Hermanson. I think that's how they're going to go with 185 pounds. But if I'm the UFC and it looks like they're going to do this, you do Johnny Bones Jones versus the last style bender Israel Adesanya next. Let the winner of Whitaker versus Cannoneer and the winner of Hermanson versus uh, Till fight each other. And then um, do Adesanya versus John Jones. Do not wait. I know they said they want to wait till late 2021 at Raiders Stadium. Don't wait. It's time. It's time to cash in. Israel's 20-0. and John Jones is technically undefeated. I believe he's 27-1-1. Um, this is the time. 
This is the time. There's nobody else for John Jones to face. He left light heavyweight to go up to heavyweight. Um, forget about the heavyweight move. Go to 205 and make Israel Adesanya versus John Jones. No belt on the line. Just a super fight. Everybody wants to see it. It's the perfect time to make it. If you wait, I feel like waiting is a tougher proposition for John Jones. I have less confidence in John Jones winning his next few fights than I do Israel Adesanya. I don't really see anybody at 185 beating Adesanya right now. If Adesanya decided to go up to 205 and try to face Jan Blachowicz for the title, um, I wouldn't mind it, but I don't think there's a point to that because we already know what you're going to want to do. So if we know where you want to go, why don't you just get to the destination and try to make that fight right now? Dana White said he wants the fight next. Does that mean it's going to happen? No, it doesn't. But I could definitely see it going down. I think Israel Adesanya versus John Jones either at the beginning of the year in January or the end of the year card, if you could get Adesanya versus John Jones and um, McGregor versus Poirier on the final pay-per-view card of the year, I think that's the best way to go, and that would be an amazing card. Um, I, I love everything about it. I think that John Jones and Israel Adesanya have been on this war path for well over a year. They've been, But the Twitter barbs have been going back and forth. I'm not going to mention any of that on this podcast, but if you want to see the war of words going on between those two, um, definitely check it out on Twitter and you can see what I'm talking about. Just go to Stylebender on Twitter or go to Johnny Bones, I think is his Twitter handle for John Jones. And uh, you could see for yourself. But I think John Jones and Adesanya is a perfect fight. And I don't know who wins. I, I favor Israel right now. I favor Izzy just because I think I think the grappling, obviously you got to give the advantage to John Jones. I think at range, you have to give, I, I don't know. I don't know. I can't say you have to give the advantage to John Jones because I can't say you have to give the advantage to John Jones on the feet, but it's, it's a thing that we don't know, but Israel is the best striker in the UFC. Israel is the best, most technical striker in the UFC. Is John Jones technical? Can he manage range? Can he manage distance? Yes, absolutely. But I think the fakes and feints of Israel is what would make the difference on the feet against John Jones. Does John Jones use fakes and feints? Yes, but he doesn't use them, and nobody uses them to the to the level of Israel Adesanya. Adesanya will, will hip feint with the kick just to close the distance and land the one-two. He'll fake with the rear kick and land a switch kick to your body. He'll fake up top with the hands just to control your power hand and then pop you with a one-two. He'll jab you, jab you, fake the jab, go lead left hook to check hook you and get off on an angle. He'll he'll fake the jab, step forward, pop, pop, knee to the body. Fake, pop, land the right hand, pop, 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 pop. And just constantly, constantly, constantly faking and feigning and overloading the brain of every opponent that he faces. Against Jones, it's going to be hard because Jones is a very technical fighter with a very high IQ on the feet. He loves to keep you at range, land side kicks to your body, land the side kicks and front leg side kicks and front kicks to the knee. I think those are those are the key for that. That's what makes John Jones so good is because people are so afraid to close the distance. But it's not also that the, it's not only that they're afraid to close the distance. It's that he it gets you thinking about so many questions that you can never find the answer to how to beat him. If you give the opponent 15 questions to answer and think about during a fight, they're never going to find that one answer. 
if you have a a a one trick pony type of style, there it's less questions to answer. The more questions, the more question marks and question mark kicks, no pun intended, that you give the opponent to think about in a fight, the harder it's going to be for them to download you, the harder it's going to be for them to pick up on your patterns, the harder it's going to be for them to decide how they have to crack the code and be able to defeat you. Against when you're looking at John Jones versus Adesanya, the grappling and the Greco-Roman style throws of John Jones could be the difference against Adesanya. But the question is, can he close the distance? Paulo Costa was able to close the distance ever so slightly, but Izzy just moves laterally off the cage. And every time he tried to throw that body kick, even if it landed, he landed it a couple a, t- a couple times pretty good, pretty solid to the body, but he would catch the kick and just make it graze off the body. Or he would back up just ever so slightly an inch out of range. So even if it landed, it just grazed. And then he would counter. Bah, 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 bah. Because Israel knows where you're going to be. He knows where you're going to be at every point in the fight. So against Jones and Adesanya, what would be the key? I think on the feet, I think Izzy beats him. I don't see John Jones being able to play a chess-style battle against Adesanya. Nobody beats him at that game. Yes, Yoel Romero had a good had a good game plan in terms of. Oh, hold on! I lost my train of thought. Israel, uh, Yoel Romero had a good game plan to try to, you know, negate the style and the striking and the counter game of Adesanya. But even when he just stood there. Adesanya just picked him apart. Jab, low kick, jab, low kick, lead high kick. Bah, bah, cl- uh, and yes, Yoel Romero did eventually push forward and land a good shot over the top. I believe he landed an overhand right, and then he pushed him up against the fence and landed some good shots. However, I still think that John Jones and Adesanya, it's definitely the fight to make, like we said. Um, I want to do a, a in-depth breakdown on that fight, so that would probably be coming in the next couple weeks. I have to obviously do... Gaethje versus Habib breakdown and predictions. Um, we're going to do the Corey Sandhagen and Marlon Morice predictions on this episode. And then I have to do Korean Zombie versus Brian Ortega for next weekend. But there's a lot to break down in terms of John Jones and Adesanya. And it's not big things. Small details are going to be the key for Jones against Adesanya. And small details are going to be the key for Adesanya against John Jones. There's no one glaring weakness in either one of their games, but if anybody can beat John Jones, it's Israel Adesanya. I'm more confident in Izzy being able to beat John Jones than I am Jones being able to beat Adesanya. And that's where I'm going to leave it at that. Up next, obviously, let's talk about, uh, we could talk about Holly Holm and Irene Aldana. Actually, no, you know what? <sighs> I didn't even do predictions for this card. And I don't really feel like breaking down the results. So if you were looking for those, I have them written down here, but I didn't watch that card as, you know, as much as I wanted to, like I didn't pay attention as much. So I don't want to break down a fight that I haven't really uh, delved into and dissected because that would just be of a disservice to you because my game is to, uh, break down the fights from a technical standpoint. And I can't do that right now. So I'm going to make sure I watch all those fights. The one I really want to talk about is Carlos Condit snapping his five-year losing streak against Court McGee. I love that fight. Um, I thought Carlos looked the best he's looked in years, and uh, we'll talk about that on another episode. Um, Holly Holm looked fantastic from what I saw. I guess I could break it down slightly. Uh, Jermaine Durandamy defeated Juliana Pena via third-round guillotine choke, choked her unconscious. The one area we thought that Juliana Pena was going to have the the 
the advantage in, and she got submitted. She got caught up against the cage, um, wrapped up in a guillotine. Jermaine Durandamy went palm to palm with it and uh, pushed up on the choke, got on top, and uh, choked Juliana Pena unconscious. So that's a big win for Durandamy. I think Jermaine Durandamy versus Holly Holm, too, is the next fight you make. Holm dominated Aldana. Um, Aldana couldn't really get anything going, was just keeping her at a distance. Pop, 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 pop with combinations. You know, Holly, ha, 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 ha. That's Holly Holm. Ha, 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 ha. That's her when she comes in. Da, 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 ba. Da, 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 ba. Da, 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 ba. That's how she throws. It's all combination striking. It's never one shot from Holly Holm unless she's trying to set up a high kick. So it would be kick, ba, 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 punches, ba, 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 ba. And it's always, she was just circling constant lateral movement, stepping in with that straight left against Irene Aldana, ba, 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 ba. Um, kicks to the legs on the inside and outside leg of Holly Holm. Irene Aldana tried to land some good low kicks too, but again, I'll have a deeper breakdown on the next episode because I, I, I really want to pay attention to Holm and Aldana because I know it was the best Holly Holm's looked in a long time. So I'll definitely um, look into that and get back to you guys. All right, guys, let's get into finally get into the predictions for the UFC fight night. Marlon Morais versus Corey Sandhagen taking place tomorrow night, October 10th, live from Fight Island, Yas Island in Abu Dhabi. I don't know why it took me so long to say that, but uh, let's start it off. We're not going to break down every fight on the card like we always talk about. It's going to be two prelims and then obviously the main card. Um, let's start it off with the prelims in the featherweight division. We have Giga Chikadze, who holds a record of 10 wins and two losses. Going up against Omar Morales. Um, good fight. Really, really good fight. You know, I'm not... You know, this is a tough fight to call. Because on the feet, you look at a guy like Giga Chikadze. And he's very, very solid. He switches stances from southpaw to orthodox. He's got good round kicks. Good striking. Good ability to stay calm on the feet. And that kind of plays into his, you know, background as a professional kickboxer. I believe he had like a 36 and six record or something as a professional kickboxer. Let's look this up. Giga Chikadze. Pull it up. Here we go. Uh, kickboxing. Here we go. Kickboxing record. So he had a record of... Okay, so that's his MMA record. His kickboxing record, it doesn't... Okay, yeah, 38 wins and 6 losses. So pretty much what I said. So not not a bad record at all. Um, the guy's been around, fight, fought in glory multiple times, won a bunch of fights. But a lot of the striking success that he had in the UFC, or in, in professional kickboxing, didn't translate over to mixed martial arts. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. That's something that you look at a lot. And it's something that's kind of... It's something that's kind of, you know, I don't want to say common, but it's kind of common because you look at a guy like Gokan Saki, who was a phenomenal professional kickboxer, won a ton of fights, and then goes into the UFC and gets knocked out by a few guys and loses a decision, gets KO'd by Khalil Roundtree. And now we don't know what the deal is with, you know, I think Saki retired. I don't think he's coming back to fight anytime soon in professional mixed martial arts. But let's get back to Giga Chikadze. You know, really good on the feet, good ability to move in and out of range, good ability to switch stances. He likes to 
uh, counter opponents coming in with knees to the body. So if you try to pressure him and get in close to either clinch range or boxing range, he's going to try to lean forward and land those knees to your body just to take you know some of the wind out of your sails. He's very, very good at his kicks. He's very good with his ability to uh, use footwork and cut angles. He's moving in and out, constantly circling left and right. Um, the one area he has a lot of trouble with is getting taken down. And uh, that's one thing you're going to need to look out for. But on the feet in a kickboxing match, there's not a lot of guys who can hand, ha uh, hang technique for technique with Giga Chikadze, whether it's inside low kicks, kicks to the body, countering you coming in with that right kick to the body, coming over the top with the right hand, switching southpaw, landing that left kick to the body, constantly moving angles if the opponent comes in, uh, trying to land flying knees. But his brown kicks to the body and to the head are very quick. There's not a lot of windup. And he's a, he has the ability to catch you coming in and use fakes and fakes with the fakes and feints with the hands to set up kicks. And then when you try to close the distance, land a knee to the body. He did good with that against Irwin Rivera. Rivera was there the whole time, but he got kind of picked apart in uh, the the entire fight. You know, just getting countered, getting kicked to shreds, getting chopped up, down, top, uh, up to the head, to the body, to the legs, inside, outside. Um, and his opponent. Um, his opponent, not Marlon Marais, Omar Marais. <laughs> I have a little bit of a main event deja vu. But uh, Omar Morales coming in undefeated. 10 wins, no losses. Giga Chikadze's 10-2. and two. Mara Omar Marais, Morales is a very, very solid mixed martial artist. That's the area where I think he differs from Giga Chikadze. Yes, Giga Chikadze is a good striker. He's good on the feet, good with range management, good with footwork, good at countering. But when it hits the ground, he has trouble with guys who can wrestle him, chain takedowns together, get on top position, control, and land damage. If you can take down Giga Chikadze and tire him out in the grappling exchanges, then he has trouble because, you know, his gas tank suffers. And Omar Morales can do that. But Omar Morales is also a very, very solid striker in and of himself. He's very good on the feet. He's pretty calm with his striking, but he's more of a counter striker. That's one thing with these guys is... Giga Chikadze counters people coming in, but I feel like he's more active and has more weapons on the feet than does Omar Morales. But that doesn't mean I don't think that Omar Morales can win this fight. Omar Morales has good takedowns, good grappling, good ability to control you from the half guard, land ground and pound, um, take you down up against the cage, get grappling and grind you out. But on the feet, he's very, very good. Really solid counter right hand. If you step in and try to land a shot on him, he can pull back and counter land the right hand. Um, Omar Morales is very, very good. He's got good body kicks. Sorry, guys. He's got good body kicks. That's another thing. His kicking game is very, very solid. There's not a lot of guys who can kick, you know, as hard as a guy like Omar Morales. I mean, he's got phenomenal, phenomenal striking. You look at him in the UFC, and he's been pretty calm, like I said. It's nothing crazy, but he's got good power in his shots, good ability to work the body, good right hand. Um, again, I said the counter right hand, he'll like to pull back and counter to, to counter your shots when your defense is down, good kicks to the body, good kicks up top to the head, good leg kicks. Um, very, very powerful kicks. I don't expect him to want to get into a lot of kicking exchanges with Giga Chikadze because I think Chikadze's kicks are cleaner and, uh, they're a little bit more, you know, technical than is, than Omar Morales. I don't think Morais, Morales wants to get into a kickboxing exchange uh, throughout the entirety of this fight with a guy like Giga Chikadze unless he can use fakes and feints and get Giga to counter and then counter the counter. If he can get Giga to counter or throw a shot that he doesn't want to throw and then counter Giga Chikadze's missed shot, 
then that's where Omar Morales is going to take over. The calf kicks against a guy like Giga Chikadze could be a big factor too. If you take away the movement and the angles of a guy like Giga Chikadze, his kickboxing game doesn't become as lethal because he's not going to be able to control the range as effectively as he would have before. Um, so I think jab to calf kick, um, jab to try to slip and counter with the right hand, good left hook from Omar Morales. Um, when it comes down to it, I'm going to go with Omar Morales to get the win via decision. I think that he's going to uh, have good success on the feet. I think his strikes are clean enough to land a lot on Giga Chikadze, but I see him favoring the wrestling um, towards the end of the first round into the second round and then just taking him down, working from the half guard, landing good grappling or landing good ground and pound and top controlling and uh, maybe looking to lock up a submission. He does have good jujitsu as well, but I do believe Omar Morales gets the win. So I'm going with Omar Morales to defeat Giga Chikadze via a unanimous decision and improve to 11 and 0. Up next in the middleweight division, you've got Impa Kasanganai. Who holds a record? Who holds an undefeated record of eight wins and no losses? Going up against Joaquin Buckley, who holds a record of ten wins and three losses. Now Buckley is coming off a knockout loss to Kevin Holland in his last fight, um, but you saw in that fight how good Joaquin Buckley is. Buckley's a guy who almost has a Mike Tyson style for mixed martial arts. Um, he does use a lot of footwork and movement, you know, kind of, kind of darting in with punches, blah blah blah, and then moving laterally. But a lot of the times he's looking to shell up, slip, and counter you with big power shots. Slip, rip, bop, 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 with hooks to the body. Slip, bop, 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 hook up top. He's constantly looking to counter and rip shots to your body. Buckley isn't much of a grappler. He's more of a, he, he reminds me more of a boxer. He's got a more boxing type of style. Um, when you look at a guy like Impa Kasanganai, this guy's a striker as well. Um, you look at his last fight against Maki Patolo, and uh, one of the best weapons I think he used in that entire fight was his left hook. He was constantly countering over the jab of Maki Patolo, I believe, with that left hook. Let me see if I can pull it up. I want to look at some highlights of his last fight. Um, I watched them yesterday, but I would like to check it out again. Here we go. Yeah, Kasanganai is a guy who, when you look at him, he he does move on the feet, but he does like to stay in the pocket a little bit too much for my liking. Uh, and that, uh, you know, it's such a tough fight to call with, with this, with this fight, because I feel like either guy can win. I think this is one of the closest fights on the card because their styles aren't, you know, a hundred percent similar, but the fact that Impa Kasanganai likes to walk forward and kind of stay in the pocket a little bit too long makes me think that Joaquin Buckley's style of ripping shots to the body with his hands and then coming up top can be a big problem for a guy like Impa Kasanganai. Um, he likes to frame with that lead left hand, and I think that could be a big factor, and I think that uh, Joaquin Buckley could use that uh, left uppercut to a right hook to counter as he uses that hand to frame. I think that Kasanganai doesn't does move his head maybe after the first one or two shots but even against Maki Patolo like I said that jab he was getting countered over the top of the jab with the right hand uh, they were both orthodox so I said they were switch stance or different stances uh Patolo and Kasanganai but they weren't Kasanganai is good though he like I said really good counter check left hook to circle and get away and get the angle um good ability to push forward and he does stay pretty patient throughout the fight you never see him overreact He's just kind of moving around, moving around, pop, moving around, slip, left hook, slip, hook to the body, slip, overhand, right, slip, left hook, one, two, slip, one, two. Um, he's good, and he's good at 
kind of staying patient in a firefight against a guy like Joaquin Buckley, who likes to step in and, like I said, use a Mike Tyson type of style, that can be a big problem or that can be a big factor because if you could stay calm when Buckley tries to dart in and land his power shots and then get out of range, you can time him stepping in and counter it. And I kind of think that's what's going to happen. I think Buckley can have some success. I do expect his style of uh, slip and rip and getting in close and ripping to the body and using a boxing heavy style. I think that is going to play a factor. I could see Buckley looking to resort to some of his wrestling and uh, getting him up, getting Kasanganai up against the cage, taking him down and trying to work ground and pound. But at the end of the day, I think that the range management and the, uh, I don't want to say footwork because I would say that the quicker feet would uh, belong to Joaquin Buckley. But I think that, the patience and the variety of the attack from Impa Kasanganai, I think the patience is really what's going to play the biggest factor in this fight against Joaquin Buckley. I think he's going to be patient enough to counter Buckley's shots as he tries to come in and rip downstairs and rip up top. And I think the uh, I think really the patience is the key. I think patience, I think uh, landing combinations, I think avoiding getting up against the cage because if he gets pushed up against the cage and cut off by Joaquin Buckley, that's going to be a recipe for disaster. But I do think that um, Impa Kasangana gets the victory, and I think he gets the win via a unanimous decision. All right, now let's move to the main card. You've got a featherweight bout between Youssef, the Moroccans, the Moroccan Devils, Alal, who holds a record of 10 wins and two losses, going up against Ilya Toporia, who's undefeated with a professional record of eight wins and no defeats. Um, this is a great fight to open up the main card, and one of the fights I'm probably looking forward to the most, aside from the co-main in the main event. Um, Youssef Salal is a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal striker. And a good grappler as well. Don't think that this guy can only uh, strike. He has good wrestling, good jiu-jitsu, and uh, it, it's not he's, – he's a very well-rounded mixed martial artist. I mean, you look at a guy like Yusuf Salal, and he has a very awkward style of footwork and movement. He's always moving. He likes to use side stances where he'll stand sideways, kind of step into range, fake and faint, then move back and switch stance. Let's see. I'm going to pull up some more highlights just so I can get a little refresher, but I know this guy is very, very good. Uh, here we go. Let's see. I mean, let's just check this guy out. I mean, it's just popping with the jab, calf kick, jab, calf kick, fake the calf kick, come up with the knee to the body. Um, when the opponent tries to step in with the overhand, right, he will turn, uh, sideways to kind of deflect the shot off the shoulder. That's one thing you see a lot with Yusuf Salal is he will constantly be turning, switching stances, slipping shots, um, switching from southpaw to orthodox as you throw the punch so that you're, if he's in an opposite stance from you and you come in and he rolls off the, if he rolls the shot in the same, or no, if he's in your same stance and uh, let's say you're both orthodox and you throw the right hand and he slips the shot and lets it roll off the shoulder, um, then he comes back and counters with his own right hand. He could slip and, and roll over the shot and switch stance to southpaw, and then he'll hide his high kicks behind his punches. That's another thing that Zalal's really good at. Jab, calf kick, jab, cross, hide the high kick behind the cross. That's something you see a lot out of TJ Dillashaw and guys at uh, Elevation Fight Team. It's just jab, calf kick, faking and feigning, stepping into range, back out, in, fake. Fake, step into range, back out, let the opponent come in, pop, 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 jab, jab. 
Fake and faint, jab, step in, pull back. He's never giving you, making you comfortable, never giving you the ability to get comfortable against him in any of his fights. He can throw flying knees. He can throw spinning back kicks, and he can also defend your takedowns. If you try to take him down, he's got good ability to uh, stuff your takedown, get control on the ground, and can lock up submissions. He's very, very good at locking up submissions and landing ground and pound. He's got a, he's got some good chokes, but his his bread and butter is on the feet, man. Um, you see him training, like I said, with some really good guys out of Factory X, which is Mark Montoya. I mean, just constantly his striking is phenomenal. Good grappling, good ability to get the front headlock position off of throws, take you down up against the cage and control you on the ground so that even if you're not getting it, even though he's got such good take uh, gra- or striking on the feet, and it's so hard to figure it out. If you try to shoot on him, he can grab your neck and get a guillotine. He can roll you um, with that guillotine and grip top position, work really good from that head and arm control, and uh, just really beat you up anywhere the fight takes place. And he's very patient. Pop you, just stick you, pop, 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 flying knees, jumping switch kicks, switching back and forth from southpaw to orthodox jab, calf kick, jab, fake and faint. And uh, I think that's a big factor against his opponent who is uh, undefeated in Ilya Taporia. Ilya Taporia is a is much more of a boxer than a kickboxer on the feet. His hands are very, very solid, but his bread and butter is in the jiu-jitsu. You look at a guy like Ilya Taporia. Let's see. We're going to look up some more highlights from him. If I can pull it up really quick, his well, I think one of his best shots on the feet is his left hook to the body. He's got such good ability to slip inside the opponent's shots and rip that left hook to the body. Like I said, one of the best shots that he throws on the feet, but he's good everywhere the fight takes place. He definitely has an advantage in the grappling. Although I said that Yusuf Zalal is a good grappler, I don't think he can hang with a guy like Ilya Taporia on the ground. This guy takes you down, gets you in top position, controls you, and eventually looks to lock up submissions, transition from side control into the full mount. You give up your back. He's going to put his hooks in, grab your neck, and strangle you and choke you out. Um, If he gets Yusuf Salah on the ground, it's a big problem. But on the feet, he looks to just push you forward, pressure you, get you up against the cage, pop, pop, left hook to the body, pop, pop, left hook to the body, left hook up top, left hook to the body, slip inside. And then fake look like it's coming to the body, come up top. He makes the left hook to the body and the left hook to the head look like the exact same setup. You look at a guy like Canelo Alvarez, he does the same thing. He'll slip, land that three to the body from the left side. He'll slip, throw it the exact same way, but change the trajectory and have it come up to your head just at a wider angle. So you so you protect your body, you, you lower your hands, and you uh, get hit up top. Then when the opponent shoots the takedowns, that's when he goes to work. He gets that whizzer, gets that overhook, and then controls you on the ground lands. Vicious ground and pound looks to get on top in top position, control you, and eventually lock up a submission. But he's good everywhere, man. This is a good fight. One of the best fights on the card. This fight is very good. It's just that a lot this card, I'm saying, I'm sorry. This card is very, very good, but a lot of people just don't know who some of these guys are. And that's the problem. This is a fight. This is a fight card with a lot of prospects. And Yusuf Salal or Yusuf Salal and Ilya Taporia are one of them. I mean, are are two of them. I'm sorry. And this is a fight everybody needs to pay attention to because we don't know where these guys are going to go in terms of their uh, in the middle or in the featherweight division. We don't know where they're going to go in their career. And this is some new blood at 145 pounds. Um, Ilya Taporia has a very very solid guillotine. 
Um, he will he will he will get the neck, throw that rear knee in, grab put grab the uh, lead leg and control the far hip, throwing it over the back to control you and avoid you from being able to pass over that knee to get to side control. And uh, if you get out, he can roll you. Um, roll onto his shoulder, get on top position, and get you from a mounted guillotine choke. He has choked out people from the top position with a mounted guillotine choke, but he's got good striking. He's knocked people out with right hands as people circle onto his right side. They circle that way, catch you with that right hand, and knock you out. So this is a dangerous, dangerous fight. Um, it's tough, man, because I've been going back and forth on this fight for a while now. You know, between Yusuf Salal and Ilya Taporia, either one of these guys can win this fight. I mean, 18-2 and two is a combined record. Zalal has two defeats. Ilya Taporia undefeated at 8-0. I don't know, but I'm going to go with Yusuf Zalal. I think that Zalal's footwork and fakes and feints and ability to get the opponent to bite on the fakes and feints, and even if they don't bite on the fakes and feints, get them to freeze so he can just pick you apart with his shots, jab, low kick fake the low kick, jab, lead hook, fake the low kick, jab, right hand, hide the right kick behind the right hand. I mean, switch stance as you throw the shot, switching from southpaw to orthodox, stepping in, stepping out, stepping in, stepping out. I think all of that is going to make it harder for Ilya Taporia to get close, get into close range. It's going to make it harder for him to set up takedowns to then work his grappling and superior jujitsu. And I think that Zalal is just going to pick him apart. I think it's going to be a close fight. I don't expect it to be easy, but I think that Yusuf Zalal, um, outpoints him. I think he lands his jab a lot, keeping Taporia at range and making him making it hard for him to um land that overhand right, making it hard for him to slip and land that hook to the body. Um look for if Zalal uses the jab a lot to control the range, look for Ilya Taporia to slip on the jab and throw that hook to the body and then look for him to fake that hook to the body and come up top with that left hook to the head, like I said that he did in uh, some of his other fights. But this is a great fight, a really, really good fight. But I'm going to go with Yusuf the Mor I'm going to go with the Moroccan Devil Yusuf Salal to get the win via a unanimous decision over Ilya Taporia. I don't see a finish. I could see a finish happening, to be honest, between either of these guys. This is such a close fight. It's really a flip of a coin. But I, like I said, I think that the the footwork, the movement, and the variety of Zalal is going to be the difference. So I'm picking Yusuf the Moroccan Devil Zalal to defeat Ilya Taporia via unanimous decision. Up next in the heavyweight division, you have the teammate of Darren Till out of Team Kalban in in England, uh, Tom Aspinall. Tom Aspinall, who holds a record of eight wins and two losses, going up against Alan Badeau, or Alan Badeau, Alan Baudot. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Alan Badeau, I think is how you say it. Um, this is a good fight, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I see that Alan Badeau or Budao, or, or Badao, I think that's how you say it, I'm sorry. I think he has, I've seen some of his highlights, but it was actually kind of hard to find a lot of highlights on this guy. And uh, one thing I noticed is that he does have decent striking. It looks like he has good ability to stay light on the feet and move into range. But if you look at one of his fights against a champion, hold on, against champion Dolce, Dolce, who, um, won the EFC light heavyweight or defended the EFC light heavyweight championship against Alan Boudreau. Um, The one thing about this fight that I didn't like and when it comes to looking at a guy like Tom Aspinall is the fact that he does, like I said, 
Look, uh, Boudot does like to fake and faint. He does like to get in close, switch his stance, but he will brawl and he will keep his hands very low. And against Dolce, he got countered with a right hook as he stepped in because he was just throwing wild shots. He got countered and he got dropped. Now against a guy in Aspinall from Team Cowbon who knocked out Jay Collier, the one reason he knocked out Collier or Jay Collier was because he timed him coming in with the knee to the body and then went pop pop with a one-two from the ortho, from the orthodox stance. So he stepped in, boom, knee to the body, pushed him off, pop pop one-two. I think that that exact combination is going to work against Alan Badeau. I think that he's going to look to come in close, step in, fake and faint. I think when he steps in, he gets hit with that knee to the body and then pop pop countered with that one-two and dropped and knocked out. So my pick for this fight is going to be Tom Aspinall. Tom Aspinall to get the win via a first-round knockout over Alan Badeau. All right. Up next in the middleweight division, we've got Marcus Perez, who holds a record of 12 wins and three defeats, going up against Drickus uh, Duplessis. Um, Drickus Duplessis is a former champion in his division, uh, a former middleweight champion in another organization. Let's see if I can. I believe it's is it is it EFC? Okay, KSW. He's a former KSW uh, middleweight champion, and uh, Drickus Duplacis is is a very very well rounded fighter. Um, he had a good back to back bout. He had good back to back bouts with um Roberto Soldich. He beat Soldich in the first fight via a knockout and then got knocked out and finished in the second fight. They never were able to finish the trilogy, but those were some good fights. So if you want a fight to watch. Look on YouTube and go see. It's a KSW, Drickus Duplessis versus Roberto Soldich. Uh, those, both of those fights are on YouTube in their entirety, so definitely check those out. But uh, one of the things that I like from a guy like Drickus Duplessis is uh, the fact that he's good everywhere. He's good on the feet with his striking. He's got very, very good kicks. Inside low kicks, outside low kicks, kicks to the body, high kicks, good striking. And uh, very, very, very good grappling as well. He's got a good ability to um, control you in a body lock up against the cage and then um, use the cage to jump and get your back and get the hooks in. There was a point where he had back control up against Roberto Soldich, jumped off the cage. He had one hook in, jumped off the cage to get the other hook in, and then dragged Soldich to the ground. Um, one thing I do think could be a problem against a guy like Marcus Perez is the fact that um, – Drakus Duplessis does tend to back up in a straight line. He does move forward and cut angles as he's moving forward, but when you push him back, he does tend to back up in a straight line. He doesn't back up laterally and cut angles, but he moves straight back. And uh, if you push him up against the fence, he, he obviously has to move laterally in circle. But he does have a problem with getting pushed up against the cage. But one of the best weapons for a guy like Drakus Duplessis is to land inside and outside low kicks on the opponent. And, uh, you know, it is a southpaw. In uh, Marcus Perez is a southpaw. He has more, with more experience in the UFC, some wins and some losses. But uh, when you look at a guy like Marcus Perez, one of his best strikes on the feet is that left power kick to the body. I do expect him to look to land that. And if he goes to throw that against Duplessis, it's going to land on the liver. And that left kick to the liver, the liver is the best place to land those shots. So I do believe that 
that's going to be the one weapon on the feet that Marcus Perez is going to look to land is that left kick to the body. I also think that Marcus Perez has very, very solid grappling, but so does Dreykus Duplessis. I think Dreykus Duplessis, I keep saying Dreykus and Dreykus. I've heard both pronunciations, so I'm sorry. I believe it's Dreykus Duplessis. But if I'm wrong, you know, you guys can correct me in the comments or leave me a message and tell me I can't pronounce his name right. But the one area that I don't like about Duplessis' game against Marcus Perez is the fact that if he gets hurt or if he tends to get backed up, he doesn't move in a linear pattern. He moves straight back. Um, on the ground, I think that Marcus Perez has a slight advantage from the clinch, but once it hits, I don't know who has the advantage, man. Because uh, I think the wrestling advantage goes to Duplessis, but I think the jiu-jitsu advantage goes to Marcus Perez. So it's going to be a factor of who can implement their game plan. Will the wrestling of Duplessis play a factor? And will he be able to control him on the ground? Or will the jiu-jitsu of Marcus Perez be able to uh, stifle the wrestling and counter the wrestling and have some good success? Um I, like I said, I think that Duplessis is very good. I think this is a tough fight for him. I think it's an even tougher fight for Marcus Perez. He's been a little hot and cold in the UFC, a couple wins, a couple losses. But, uh, you know, I think that Dricus Duplessis gets the win here. I think that his kicking game on the feet, the uh, jab and low kicks, the, the counter shots, and his ability to control the opponent in the um, body lock and clinch up against the cage is what's going to be a, a big factor. It's a close fight because both guys are very good, but I think the kicking game, the lead leg, the lead leg low kicks and the low kicks to the inside and the kicks to the body and the counter punching of Dreykus Duplessis, if you push him back, is going to be a factor. I think he lands on Marcus Perez as he pushes forward, counters him because he likes to tend to rush forward a little bit. I think he gets countered as he steps in, gets hurt by Drickus Duplessis. Drickus uh, jumps on top of him, knocks and uh, gets ground and pound and gets the finish. So my pick is going to be Drickus Duplessis to get the win in his UFC debut over Marcus Perez via a, I'm going to go a second round TKO. So and if you're wondering about the records, Perez is coming in with a 12-3 and record and Drykus Duplessis is coming in with a record of 14-2. and So I am going with Drykus Duplessis to get the win via a second round knockout over Marcus Perez. All right, up next is in the heavyweight division. You've got a bout between Big Ben Rothwell, who holds a record of 38 wins and 12 defeats, going up against Marcin Tybora, who holds a record of 19 wins and 6 losses. I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to be spending a whole lot of time on this fight. Um, I think that this fight is kind of a coin flip when you look at overall game of each guy. I think Ben Rothwell is a guy who kind of just plods forward on the feet. He kind of just looks to move his head from left to right. He just kind of comes in, moves his head, and looks to throw some shots at you and try to KO you. But he also tries to get you in an exchange where he can get a hold of your neck and then choke you out. Um, he's got a very, very solid guillotine choke, and he likes to take your head, and uh, he'll go palm to palm with the choke. He'll turn it, and then sometimes he will drag you down to the ground and get on top of you and add a bunch of torque to it and choke you out. If Ben Rothwell gets a hold of your neck, he can choke you out instantly. He's got very, very, very good jujitsu, and he's very strong when he gets a hold of your neck. Um, when you look at a guy 
like Tabora, he's better on the feet than is Ben Rothwell. He's more technical, he's more crisp, and he's cleaner on the feet in terms of his striking. He's got a very, very solid kicking game. If you look at a guy like Marcin Tabora, he's got very, very solid kicking game, but he's also got really good grappling. He has an ability to um, take you down, get you in the top control, get you in mount land, good ground and pound. If you spin, he'll take your back and uh, keep the hooks in and just land vicious, vicious ground and pound and control you. Marcin Tabora is a very, very technical guy, and he's, he's well-rounded everywhere. On the feet, on the ground, he can beat you anywhere the fight takes place. Um, I, I don't know if he wants to go to the ground with a guy like Ben Rothwell, an experienced veteran who's been around the game for a very, very long time. I don't think that's something you want to do. And on the feet, I just think he's cleaner with his striking. He, he brings up that right um, kick to the body, good kicks to the head from that right side, good fakes and feints. Um, ben Rothwell likes to fake and feint too, but he's kind of just more of a puncher. He doesn't tend to throw a lot of kicks, doesn't tend to throw too many knees. He just kind of moves his head, moves his head. And if Rothwell moves his head over to his left side, I think he can get hit with a right. Uh, actually, if he moves his head over to the right side, he can lean into the left the lead left high kick of marching Tabora, or if he slips to the other side, he can get hit with a high kick on that side as well. I think that Tabora is just more well-rounded overall. Um, I think that Rothwell is an experienced veteran. He's been around the game for a long time. Like I said, I mean, he has over 50 fights or no, he actually has 50 fights in total. Tabora only has 25. So double the amount of fights. So that's double the amount of experience in that heavyweight division. So Rothwell might have some tricks up his sleeve. He could look to use striking to set up weird exchanges where Tabora leaves his neck out there so Rothwell can get a hold of his neck. However, I'm not sure who I favor in winning this fight. I, I got to go with Tabora. I just think that he's a more well-rounded fighter. I think he's got more, more left in the tank. I think he's better everywhere the fight takes place unless Rothwell's able to get a hold of his neck. So I'm going to go with Marcin Tabora to defeat Ben Rothwell. And I'm actually going to go via a third-round TKO. I think he tires out Rothwell with just his movement and his kicking game. I think he tends to land a lot of kicks and knees to the body of Rothwell. And uh, I think that he gets in mount a few times and controls him from the mount and controls him from the back and uh, lands some vicious ground and pound and gets the finish. So I'm going to go with a third-round TKO over Ben Rothwell for Marcin Tabora. So Marcin Tabora to get the victory via third-round TKO. Up next, a fight I am very, very excited to see, and I'm really looking forward to the co-main event in the featherweight division. You have the number 14-ranked former lightweight top contender, Edson Jr. Barbosa, coming into the, this fight with a, with a record of 20 wins and 9 defeats, going up against Mr. Finland, Makwan Amir Khani, who holds a record of 16 wins and 4 defeats. Um, I love everything about this fight. Now, if you knew originally this fight was supposed to be Super Sadiq Youssef and Edson Barbosa, which I think would have been a better fight, but this is probably your second best option to give Barbosa. Um, I love the Makwan Amir Khani fight, but I do think that the, the Super Sadiq Youssef fight was a better fight overall, and I was really looking forward to seeing that. So hopefully, if Barbosa gets the win here, um, we'll be able to see Yus uh, Sadiq Youssef and Edson Barbosa lock up in the future because I really want to see that fight. I think that fight is phenomenal. Um, in any stretch of the imagination, that, that fight is absolutely great. So let's talk about Makwan Amir Khani versus Edson Barbosa. Obviously, Makwan Amir Khani is coming off a win over Dan Henry. He uh, submitted him via a, I believe he got an anaconda choke, uh, if I'm correct. Let me see if I can pull that up. 
black one. Hold on. Black one, Amir Khani. Versus Danny Henry. All right. Yeah, here we go. I can pull it up. So, yeah, uh, Maquan uh, always comes out with that southpaw stance. He's pretty good at trying to control the range. If the opponent's in an orthodox stance like Barbosa, you're going to want to try to get that outside foot. You want to take your lead foot and put it on the outside of the opponent's lead foot. It gets your head off the center line and allows you to line up that straight left hand down the middle. Um Maquan Amir Khani has good right hooks from that lead side, but mainly in this fight against Barbosa, He's going to look to want to catch the kicks of Barbosa, which is going to be very hard because Barbosa kicks extremely quick. He's got some of the fastest and most explosive kicks in the sport. Um, he's going to look to catch the kick, or he's going to look to time Barbosa, push him up against the fence, and then look to work from the body lock or the underhooks in that position. Um, look to get into the over-under position up against the cage, eventually transition to a body lock, take the opponent down, go to the back, then reach around from the back when you have back control, like in that referee's position. He's going to want to reach around the neck from the back control and then sink in that rear, uh, that arm and guillotine. So he likes to get you, he likes to get the back control. So he'll take you down off the fence with a body lock, sink his weight towards your right side, and then he will take that left arm, which was uh, under your right arm or under the opponent's right arm and he will reach around to the right side of the or to the left side of the opponent around the neck and then he will grab a hold of his other hand underneath the left or underneath the right arm of the opponent lock the hands slide that right knee in across the shin across the belly and then take that other leg and put it around the back and try to get the control and then get that arm and guillotine submission. If you roll to your side, he's going to look to transition to the anaconda choke and uh, grab the bicep and then walk towards you and try to sync up the choke. He can also try to get hold of your left arm with that right leg to uh, stop you from being able to push his knee off and push him away from you. Because if you're able to create space, that's why the opponent walks away from you. As you try to, as you try to creep forward and get closer to the opponent, walking your feet forward, that makes the anaconda choke tighter. That's why they call it an anaconda choke because you have the choking as you walk forward. And as you creep your toes forward and get closer, the tight, the choke gets tighter. So if the opponent's able to put a hand on your hip and push your hips away and walk the other direction and go in a circle. You want to go in a circle completely to uh, alleviate the pressure and eventually get out and uh, roll inside the choke and then get on top position. However, Danny Henry got caught up in this position. Makwan Amir Khani walked it forward and uh, got the tap and got the submission in the first round. So Amir Khani is very good from at getting you up against the fence, getting you into a body lock position, taking you down. He's very, very strong from that body lock position and then reaching around your head from that body lock and transitioning to the uh, guillotine choke, the arm and guillotine. That's one of his best moves. He tried to use it against Shane Burgos. It, it was pretty close in the beginning, but he just out grappled Shane Burgos. That's one thing about Mr. Finland is he is very, very strong in the grappling exchanges. And against Barbosa, the one thing we've seen with Edson Jr. Barbosa is he has trouble with guys who push him back, pressure him, and try to grapple him the entire time. But the one area of Edson Barbosa's game that I think is going to be a factor against Makwan Amir Khani are the kicks to the body, the lead leg left switch kick to the body and the right rear kick to the body of Makwan Amir Khani. I think Barbosa only needs a few of those 
to really, really take the wind and take the pep out of the step of Amir Khani. Now, can he do that before Amir Khani pressures him and pushes him forward and gets him back up against the cage? I don't know. I do believe he's going to be able to do that, though. I think that I think that uh, Maquan's one area where he can win this fight is taking him down, tiring him out, and looking for a submission. Um, but I think Barbosa is too quick for Amir Khani. I think he's too crisp on the feet. I think he's too quick. I think the opposite stance of Makwan Amir Khani fighting in a southpaw stance, that means that that right kick of Barbosa is going to line up with the liver of Makwan. And uh, he has had trouble with getting hit to the body. Shane Burgos had good success with punches to the body as he stepped for, uh, as he closed the distance and ripped hooks to the body um, because Makwan got very tired. The grappling heavy style of Makwan Amir Khani gets him tired the longer the fight goes. I expect the first round to be a big tell in how this fight's going to go. If Maquan just comes out, pushes Barbosa up against the cage, gets the over-under position, transitions to the body lock, and then uh, elevates Barbosa, takes him down, and controls him on the ground, I think Barbosa's going to get tired in the moving into that second round, but I also think that Maquan's going to get more tired. I don't really see an area... I don't really see Maquan Amir Khani winning this fight. I think Maquan Amir Khani is too rudimentary on the feet and his defense isn't good enough to uh, catch the kicks of Barbosa and transition them into grappling exchanges. And I think as he pushes Barbosa forward, the longer the fight goes, he's just going to end up getting countered with knees to the body, elbows like Barbosa used against Dan Ige when Ige pushed forward and moved in a straight line. He came over the top with an elbow and hurt Ige. I could see Barbosa doing the exact same thing to Makwan Amir Khani. I think the inside and outside low kicks, I think he's going to chop up the lead leg of Makwan Amir Khani. I think he's going to rip the body. And I expect Edson Jr. Barbosa to come through big on this one and get the finish. I just think he's too crisp and too clean. He's fought the better competition. And uh, the body shots and the kicks of Edson Barbosa are going to rip up Makwan Amir Khani. Um, so my pick for this fight is Edson Jr. Barbosa to defeat Makwan Amir Khani via a second round TKO. I think he rips to the body and uh, drops him with body shots, kind of like how he did against Dan Hooker, but a little bit different. I think it's a little bit. I think uh, I think Dan Hooker can take more damage than Makwan could. So I expect uh, the body shots of Edson Barbosa and the kicking game of Barbosa with that lead leg switch kick to the body and the rear leg. Um, roundhouse to the body. I think that's going to be the key, and I expect Barbosa to um, get the finish. So my pick is Edson Jr. Barbosa to defeat Makwanamir Khani via a second-round knockout. All right, let's go to the main event of the evening. What everybody is waiting for, a, a bout between top-ranked bantamweight contenders. You have the number one-ranked Magic Marlon Morais, who holds a record of 23 wins, six defeats, and one no contest, going up against, I believe he's ranked number fourth in the division. Hold on. Let's see. Well, actually, I could just pull up the event page on UFC.com. That would be easier, wouldn't it? <laughs> Uh, here we go. Check out the fight card. Here we go. Yeah, okay, so he's ranked number fourth. I don't know why. Or number four in the division. So the number one ranked Magic Marlon Morais going up against the number fourth ranked Corey the Sandman Sandhagen. Um, I love this fight. I love everything about this fight. This is such a perfect stylistic matchup for both guys. It's a very tough matchup for both guys. And it's extremely, extremely interesting to see who's going to pull out, pull this one out on top. Um, when you look at the stats, I mean, um, Corey Sandhagen has a height advantage of four inches. Marlon Morais five foot six. Uh, Corey Sandhagen five eleven. 
Um, with reach, it's a three-inch reach advantage for Corey Sondhagen, and I expect him to use that to the best of his ability. And with a leg reach, it is a three-inch inch reach advantage, again, with a 40-inch reach advantage. Um, when you look at finishes, Mar Magic Marlon Marais is a higher finisher or more of a finisher than is Corey Sondhagen. He has 43% of his wins coming by way of knockout and 26% of his wins coming by way of submission. That is a 69% finishing rate to Corey Sondhagen's 58% finishing rate. So they're close, but Magic Marlon Marais has the ability to finish opponents in the blink of an eye. Um, Magic Marlon Marais is, uh, trains under Mark Henry, trains with guys like Edson Barbosa, um, trains with, I would think, Cody Garbrandt, but I don't think they would train together. And then, obviously, Frankie the Answer Edgar. And Magic Marlon Marais has a very similar style to a Frankie Edgar. He likes to move laterally and move forward, kind of just move his head, kind of cut slight angles to his left and right, use that jab, pop that jab, double it up, triple it up, pop, pop, pop. Um, but the biggest weapon for Magic Marlon Marais is his kicking game, the lead leg switch kick to the head. The rear leg switch, uh, the rear leg high kick, um, spinning kicks, tornado roundhouse kicks. That lead leg switch kick is the most dangerous weapon in the game of Magic Marlon Marais. If he catches you with that, there's no windup. It's the fastest switch kick in MMA. Barbosa and Magic Marlon Marais have the fastest switch kicks in all of mixed martial arts. You saw what the switch kick did to Eljamain Sterling with Magic Marlon Marais. He timed a takedown attempt. Went for a lead leg switch kick. Um, it didn't even fully extend. He ended up hitting um, Aljamain Sterling with the knee because he didn't get the kick at full extension. He met him halfway, knocked him out cold. That was the dab knockout. If you haven't seen that, look up uh, Magic Marlon Marais versus Aljamain Sterling. Um, caught Jimmy Rivera with it quickly in the middle in the beginning of the fight with him and Rivera. He was moving. He circled. He double jabbed and uh, moved to his left to get the angle, and then. Lead legs, high kick, lead switch kick to the head, dropped Jimmy Rivera immediately and uh, jumped on top of him to get the finish. So the switch kick and the explosiveness and the power all go to the advantage of Magic Marlon Morais. If you look at the knockdown average, you could see that um, 1.72 knockdowns for per 15 minutes for Magic Marlon Morais. He scores almost two knockdowns per 15 minute fight. Corey Sandhagen has a 0.6% knockdown average. He does finish, guys. He's finished Yuri Alcantara. He finished uh, Austin Arnett. He finished, uh, I believe he finished one or two more guys in the UFC. Um, he He's very, very good. Uh, first loss in the UFC coming in his last fight to Eljamain Sterling. I mean, if you want to look at MMA math, Corey, uh, Corey Sandhagen holds a win over Rafaela Sunsau. Marlon Marais lost to Sunsau, but then avenged the loss via a finish. Corey Sandhagen beat him by decision. And then if you look at Aljamain Sterling, Sterling submitted Corey Sandhagen via rear naked choke in the first round at UFC 250. And Magic Marlon Marais knocked out Aljamain Sterling with the uh, lead leg switch kick. So, um, and then, you know, those are the only common opponents that they've had. So that's the only thing we can use in terms of, you know, a common opponent. But uh, if you look at more of the, if you look at average fight time, it's pretty close. I mean, it's almost seven minutes for Magic Marlon Marais, six minutes, 59 seconds to eight minutes and 18 seconds for Corey Sonhagen. Um, when you look at the significant strikes, this is where I think the big change in the fight takes place. When you look at strikes landed per minute in a 15 minute fight, Magic Marlon Marais lands 3.23 to 6.95 
for Corey Sandhagen. That is almost a four strike advantage per minute for Corey Sandhagen. He is the more active, the more complete mixed martial artist. Well, I wouldn't say more complete mixed martial artist, but he's definitely the more active guy. Um, significant strike accuracy also favors Corey Sandhagen. Uh, Magic Marlon Marais holds a 34% accuracy rate to a 48% accuracy rate for Corey Sandhagen. Uh, absorbed per minute, Sandhagen actually takes more strikes, but that's because Marlon is more uh, defensively minded and he doesn't jump in with a lot of shots until the fight, until he kind of, he kind of lets the fight. Well, it's okay. So he's very dangerous in the first two rounds of this fight is what I think. I think that in this fight, since it's a five round fight, the first two rounds of the five round fight are very, very dangerous for Sandhagen. If he's going to get finished by Marlon Morice, it's going to be in the first two rounds, either by getting caught with a kick to the head, getting caught with a switch kick, getting dropped with a punch, getting dropped and submitted. That is going to be the key for Marlon Morice. After the second round, his percentage of winning goes drastically down because he has a problem with people who pressure him. He has a problem with people who don't um, bend to his will. They don't bend to his presence. Um, Henry Cejudo was getting chewed up in the first two rounds, round and a half, and he never backed down. He kept moving forward, kept moving forward, got him in the tie clinch, landed knees to the body, knees up top, eventually just outstruck him with that clinch. The, the tie plum and the collar, the double collar clinch was the big factor for Henry Cejudo in their fight at UFC 238. Landing vicious knees to the body, knees up top to the head, pop, 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 pop. Uh, and, and the clinch just taking the wind out of Marlon Moraes, taking all the kicks, um, letting him explode early in the fight to get his energy down and then moving forward and trying to finish him. That's how Corey Sanhagen is going to win this fight. Um, when you look at significant strike defense, it's a 65% accuracy rate for Marlon Moraes to a 58% accuracy rate for Corey Sanhagen. So Corey Sanhagen does get hit more, but he is also the more active fighter. And against a guy like Magic Marlon Moraes, I believe activity is going to be the key and fakes and fakes and the pressure of Sandhagen is the key against Morais. Like I said, Morais doesn't do very well against guys who pressure him backwards. And with Corey Sandhagen, you look at his game. He's constantly moving, constantly switching stances, constantly giving you different things to look at. Um, he'll he'll move forward and jab you. He'll fake and faint. He'll he'll put his hands out to control your hands. Pop you with the jab. Pop you with the jab. Low kick. Jab. One two. Uh, fake, go one, two, then he'll go rear uppercut to a rear right hook and switch into southpaw, pop you with the straight left hand as he switches stances. As he moves forward, as he moves backward, he'll switch stance. One thing that Corey Sandhagen does very well is as he moves laterally, he'll switch his stance from orthodox to southpaw. So as he moves left, he'll pop, he'll, he'll be in orthodox, which is left leg in front, right leg in back. He'll pop you with that jab and then he'll switch his stance with that right hook and go to southpaw. As he moves left again, he'll switch to orthodox. He'll fake left, fake and faint, kick, fake, low kick, fake, kick to the body, fake the kick, knee. He's got so many weapons, and his fakes and feints and his ability to control distance are what is going to be the key against a guy like Morais. And the one thing that we've seen Morais have trouble with are shots to the body. Against um, Jose Aldo, that left hook to the body to that left uppercut was landing multiple times in the fight. And Aldo was able to come forward and just pressure Marlon, push him back, tire him out, and just try to uh, just kind of bully him in that second round and in the third round until Marais was able to time the clinch entries 
of uh, Aldo use his momentum and get a hip toss or get a uh, get a toss from or a throw from the clinch. The uh, the throws at the end of the first and the third round are what won that fight for Magic Marlon Marais, in my opinion. But that left hook to the body from Aldo was was money. Um, that left uppercut, so he would go left hook to the body, left uppercut. Um, one two, the one two was landing because Marais likes to crash forward sometimes. Pop pop catching him as he moved in. I think that Corey Sandhagen's game is just almost the perfect remedy to defeat a guy like Magic Marlon Morice. Like I said, he's constantly switching stances. As he moves left, he goes to orthodox. As he moves right, he switches to southpaw. Right uppercut, right hook to get the angle. Pop you with the straight left hand. Double jab. Um, he likes to do a takedown like his teammate at Elevation Fight Team, uh, TJ Dillashaw, where he'll one, two, step forward into southpaw, but he'll take that rear leg, Lap it, wrap it around the opponent's lead leg and uh, or wrap it around the opponent's rear leg, I'm sorry, and take him down. So he'll step forward, use that step forward to wrap around the leg of the opponent and get the body lock and take the opponent down. Um, on the ground, I think that Magic Marlon Rice has the better jujitsu, but I think that the scrambling game of Corey Sandhagen is going to be able to avoid a lot of the submission attempts that Marlon Rice you know, has to offer. However, if Magic Marlon Marais gets a hold of his neck, um, that can be a problem. And uh, if he's able to lock up a guillotine choke, I can definitely see him um, getting a finish over Corey Sandhagen. Like I said, um, you look at a guy like Marais in terms of striking, he's he's more like a Frankie Edgar style. He's more like a Eddie Alvarez type of style where he moves laterally. He'll kind of step in, pop, pop, kick, pop, pop, kick. Um, lead leg switch kick to the head, rear kick to the body. He doesn't throw a lot of combinations, but every once in a while he'll open. Ugh, excuse me, he'll open up with punches, and like he did against Cejudo in the first round. Um, Cejudo tried to throw a punch, and Marais countered with like a one, two, three rear uppercut and a left hook. Um, Marais does cut angles, but the but when you look at movement, Corey Sandhagen moves. So much more. He cuts. He uses so many more feints, so many more angles than does Marlon Marais. Um, one thing Marais likes to do is kind of fake that kick to use it to step forward. So he'll fake the kick, like almost switch his hips, and then just use that to move an angle off to his left side. Um, sometimes he'll fake move off to that left side, and then he'll switch jab and step to southpaw to get the angle on the opposite side. Sandhagen does that same thing. He'll go one, two, switch jab to get the outside angle, right hook, left straight, left hook to get back to ortho. Docs one two. Um, Sandhagen likes to throw. Um, if the opponent's in an opposite stance, he'll throw that back leg kick to the body, and then he'll use that leg as it steps as it drops down from the kick to switch stance again, and then cut off the opponent. I think the pressure and the variety of Corey Sandhagen is going to melt Marlon Morais. I think the first two rounds are extremely dangerous. There's no doubt about that. It's extremely dangerous for Sandhagen. Um, and with his hands down style, he does keep his hands up sometimes when the opponents push forward, but Marais is so quick and so explosive that his hands low style early in the fight can cause him to get knocked out. He might slip the high kick, but it might catch him and just clip him and drop him and knock him out. He might get caught with a punch as he's moving and get dropped and knocked out. Anybody can get caught and the low hand style against Marlon Marais could be problems, and it's very dangerous. It's a dangerous game to play against a person who has who's as explosive and powerful as Marlon Marais. And he's very technical with his strikes. Don't just think that Marais isn't technical. He's got some of some very very good boxing, very solid jab, double and triple it up. His his kicks, like I said, we've already talked about those phenomenal kicking game. 
um, and good jujitsu. Morais is a very, very dangerous guy. He's going to be at the top of the bantamweight division for a long time, and I don't expect him to be out of the top five in his entire UFC career. I think he can stay in the top five forever. Does he ever get to the title shot? I think he can. I think Morais can be a champion. But right now, I think this fight is tailor-made for the style of Corey Sandhagen. And it's a five-round fight. We know Morais gets tired because he's so explosive and he's so dangerous early on in the fight. I think that Sandhagen plays it safe the first two rounds, just looks to counter, pop the jab out, keep Morais at range, step in, land that left hook to the body, take the wind out of Morais, and then he takes over going into that third round. And I think he melts Marlon Morais with the pressure. I'm going to go with Corey Sandhagen to get the victory via a fourth-round TKO over Magic Marlon Morais. That's what I think. I think the the footwork, the angles, the combination striking, the ability to stay calm in so many situations and push forward but not get too close to the opponent is what's going to be the key. A beautiful left hook to the body to right low kick. They call that the Dutchie. Rip that kick, rip that hook, and then drive the kick into the, to the calf. Um, I think that Corey Sandhagen is dangerous. I think that a lot of people might be counting him out in this fight because of how explosive um, Marlon Morais is, but I think that this fight is dangerous for Morais. I think this fight is tailor-made for Sandhagen in a five-round fight. I think he fakes and faints. I think he gets Morais to overexert himself in the first two rounds, um, drain his energy, and then just picks him apart and eventually gets the TKO. I expect him to drop Morais with a body shot. I think that left hook to the body over and over and over again is going to hurt Morais. I think he drops him. I think he jumps on top of him and gets the TKO. So my pick for the main event of the evening is Corey, the Sandman Sandhagen, to defeat Magic Marlon Morais via a fourth-round TKO. And that's my predictions for this card. Um... Later on in the week, we're going to have another WWE episode to talk about NXT TakeOver and then talk about the results of the WWE Draft. And then I will have my predictions for um, the Korean Zombie versus Brian Ortega coming out later this week. And then following that, it will be the predictions for Justin Gaethje versus Habib Nurmagomedov at UFC 254. So stay tuned. Um, thank you guys for um, supporting the podcast. Thank you guys. It means so much to me. Um, our podcast has jumped up in viewers the last couple months. Within the last month, we've grown. I think it's because I've, I've uploaded some episodes to YouTube. This episode will be getting uploaded to YouTube as well. So uh, thank you guys. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Have a good night, everybody. All right?